Bo Armstrong is a Dallas-born, Nashville-based singer-songwriter who pairs hardened lyrics with a heartfelt voice to deliver honest, Texas-inspired Americana songs. He has just released his second full album called Chasing Ballads, following up his 2018 album Where We Are. The album was produced by up-and-coming Austin producer Brian Douglas Phillips at Brian's hot new studio, Rattle Trap Audio. Brian contributes acoustic guitar, banjo, bass guitar, and mellotron, as well as vocals and some co-writes. Together, they create a fusion of folk, rock, and country sounds with very strong storytelling. Chasing ballads tell stories about human relationships, including finding love, falling in love, marriage, parenting, loneliness, and vulnerability, and other timeless musical themes. Welcome to Backstory Song. I am your host, Doug Burke, and I am so happy to have here on our show today, Bo Armstrong, to talk about some of the songs from his new album, Chasing Ballads. Bo, welcome to our show. It is awesome to be here. Thanks for having me. Hey, Bo, tell me why did you start writing songs? So songwriting for me goes back long time, probably almost 20 years now. Um, and like a lot of people, it was just sort of an escape for me at the time. Um, I was a 15 year old kid who was living away from home. I'm from Texas originally, but I was a bit of an anomaly, I guess. At the time I was a hockey player from Texas. So in order to pursue that at a relatively young age, I went off to a boarding school in Connecticut. So I was very far from home, very far from things that were familiar to me. And I had a guitar and I loved country music and I would listen to country songs from my dorm room up in the snow in Connecticut. And that was my way of kind of bridging the gap back home, kind of dealing with some I guess in hindsight, I'm comfortable saying it, but you know, I was probably a pretty homesick kid at 15 when I was all those miles away. At the time, I would have never admitted it, but I think that was definitely a part of it. But yeah, it was sort of a bridge back home to things that were familiar. And that's when I first picked up the guitar. I was about 15 years old and very quickly started writing songs because I had a hard time learning other people's songs. <laughs> Out of curiosity, what was the, the name of the prep school? Uh, I went to the Hotchka School in Connecticut. Right there up on the New York-Connecticut border, up in a very cold corner of the state. <laughs> and did they have a good hockey team? We did. We Well, uh, historically pretty good. At the time I was there, we were kind of mediocre, I'd say, middle of the pack. Uh, we weren't winning any championships, but you know, we were always competitive. How did you actually learn to ice skate in Dallas, Texas. Yeah, I got the hockey bug when the Dallas Stars moved from Minnesota to Dallas in 92 and you know, I I dove in right away and when I when I started playing, I think there was one ice rink in Dallas and that's where the Stars were practicing and that's where any youth hockey was and it was relatively small, but in less than 10 years, uh the sport really exploded. Uh it helped that the Stars were good. It helped that they, you know, won a Stanley Cup. And I I think after they they won a Stanley Cup, now there's like 
at least a dozen sheets of ice within 20 minutes of the house I grew up in. And, you know, youth hockey's grown monumentally there as well. And, you know, lots of players are starting to get big college scholarships and playing through juniors and being drafted. So untraditional hockey markets are becoming, you know, great sources of talent. <laughs> There's lots of talented hockey players coming out of California and Texas and even uh, Nashville, where I am now. Yeah, the U.S. juniors just beat Canada. Yeah, some of those guys, if you look at the roster, you know, they're not all from Massachusetts. They're not all from Minnesota. The, the kids are all over the place. And I think that's a testament of the game. I think the league has actually done a good job of outreach and getting people playing all across the country. And So is any part of playing hockey, the competition, ice skating... Is that, is that in any of your songs? Um, I don't think it is directly. I, I think... Well, there you go. Now you can go write a song about... Yeah, exactly. exactly. So, Bo, the first song we want to talk about is Meet Me in Memphis. I'm a huge Memphis song fan. There's been many songs. So, you know, you're, you're taking on some hallowed ground here. Indeed. Indeed. And that was a, a risk I was willing to take when it came to me. I actually made a playlist on Spotify of all the songs that I could think of that either had, you know, allusions to Memphis or straight up said it directly, whether it was in a chorus or a lyric or anything. I'll have to send you that playlist at, at some point. But I almost didn't do it because of that, because it's such a common, you know, thing. Um, and, you know, it's a common source of inspiration for musicians. I was a bit nervous, admittedly, to enter my version into that mix. And I, and I almost didn't do it, but I finally just decided that it is a part of my experience. It's a part of my life. And I felt that it wouldn't be disingenuous to give one a shot. Ultimately, I'm, I'm glad I went with it. It's a song that means a lot to me. I think it turns out fun. And I, I actually think we did a good job of capturing a bit of a Memphis feel to it while still keeping it in the context of my record overall. So, so you talk about some legendary places. You know, I had to actually look them up, but I, sh I I probably shouldn't have needed to do this. You talk about both Route 61 and Route 49 and the junction of those two roads comes up late in the song. Yep. 
I was holding on to that until the second verse. Yeah. So I spent two years living in Mississippi. I was about an hour south of Memphis. When I graduated college, I, I did a teaching program called Teach for America, where it basically takes recent college graduates and puts them in communities across the country that are in dire need of teachers. And I ended up in the North Delta. I lived in Cahoma County, which is the closest town is Clarksdale, which is, you know, a pretty pretty famous spot if you're a lover of the blues. There's a lot of history there and it is kind of like one of I'd say two hearts of Delta Blues. So I, I lived there for two years. I was sort of in the thick of it. And one of the tricky parts is 61 takes you from Memphis down into the Delta. That's historically, you, you always hear about 61. 61 intersects with Route 49. And that is where the legend has it that Robert Johnson sold his soul to the devil. And I lived less than a mile from that intersection. The so-called crossroads. The so-called crossroads, exactly. Which we've I went down to the crossroads. Exactly. Got down on one knee, right? And my version of that, I was romanticizing it a bit because the song is, a, is about a long distance relationship I had with my then girlfriend turned fiance, now wife. In the song, I, I romanticized it a bit by taking her to the crossroads and proposing to her there. That didn't actually happen, but it was my sort of romantic version of what could have been and trying to pull together the elements of where I was at that point of my life and at that point in my relationship. So where did you propose to her? Uh, <laughs> ultimately, I proposed to her, well, you're familiar with New England, on a hike in, what is it, Talcott Mount, Mountain in Connecticut? A mountain is a bit of an overstatement. It's more of a, a hill, but it was about a three-mile hike, about 10 or 15 miles from where my wife grew up. I proposed to her at the top of that little hiking trail. That was something she was familiar with as a kid and something I had grown familiar with just from visiting her and her family over the years. That actually sounds a little more romantic than the crossroads of Route 49 and Route 61. I mean, what is at the crossroads of Route 69 and 40? So there, there's, it's actually interesting because there's, there's two <laughs> alleged points where those roads cross. Um, and the one where some would argue is like the true crossroads is in Lula, um, which is right where I lived. But the marker that is more commonly known is um, right in Clarksdale. And at that marker, the glorified marker is an Abe's barbecue, which is if you're ever in Clarksdale, Mississippi, definitely recommend it. Um, and there's um, a sign that commemorates it. The lesser known intersection, I'm probably going to have some true blues enthusiasts really come after me for this, but I believe the proper true place where 61 meets 49 is up towards Lula, where I was living. Which again, this is only about 15 miles from the other marker, but there's a little bit of a discrepancy, I feel like. So I had to look up a lot of this stuff, and not far from there is the Blue and White Restaurant at Tunica Square. So you say, we'll throw dice under those Hollywood lights just past the Tunica Square, yeah. kiss away the night, then hit the blue and white. Yep. Love your internal rhymes throughout your songs. Yep. Now, the blue and white is the number two ranked restaurant on TripAdvisor out of 44 <laughs> in Tunica. And 
looks like an awesome place to go. It's awesome. Me. Yeah. So it um the Blue and White Diner is right on 61. If you're dri- if you're ever driving from Memphis to Clarksdale, um you go through Tunica. And Tunica's about 20 minutes from the house that I was living in at the time. But Tunica gets a big shout out in the song because it's in between Memphis and where I was living. And at the time, my then girlfriend, when she was coming to visit, she would, of course, fly into Memphis. That's where the Meet Me in Memphis comes. And I would drive up to Memphis after a school day on a Friday afternoon and pick her up. And we would drive down 61. And the first time we did that, we stopped for a night and we stayed at the Hollywood Casino in Tunica. Tunica is one of the Delta towns that depending on how you look at it, either benefited greatly or suffered mightily from the arrival of casinos. There's a ton of casinos in Tunica, and I think some of them have since closed. But the first trip she ever took, I picked her up in Memphis. We drove down and stopped for that Friday night at the Hollywood Casino. (laughs) Very romantic. We stayed there the night and we went to that diner, Blue and White, which was a spot that I went to frequently with friends while I was living because it was such a part of what I was experiencing regularly, I wanted Lindsay to see that on our first trip. So we mixed all that in on her first trip down. But blue and white, if you're ever making that drive, it's impossible to miss because you'll you'll literally drive right by it. That drive on 61 from Memphis to Clarksdale, which you can then continue your journey down to New Orleans if you so choose. It's a two-lane highway, two to four-lane highway. And I put highway in quotes. You can't see me putting them in quotes, but it's a road. It is a long, very straight road. (laughs) And the blue and white diner is impossible to miss. You know, I really think you made the right call not proposing at the blue and white or the Hollywood Casino or the crossroads there, Bo. I think you're a wise man, Lindsay, you know. (laughs) Your odds of closing were higher the way you did it, I think. And, and I was still able to romanticize it in song. <laughs> and and that, that's probably better served there. Yeah. So this is the first song we're talking about, but yeah. I have to say the production values on this album are exceptional and so pleasing. And there's so many layers of sound, especially different types of guitars and mellotrons and yeah, steel guitars and acoustic guitars and and your producer and sometimes co-writer on some of the songs. Yeah, is Brian Douglas Phillips. Yes, he's fantastic. He's a master, and he does all this from his home studio with a I call him a cast of musicians. Two guys, Jacob Hildebrand and um, drummer Fred Manduano. Just as a unit, I mean, it, it, it almost feels like you're getting more than one producer because you have those three minds on it all at once. They know each other so well, both personally and musically, that they really know where to take a project. And it's pretty awesome. That process is also seamless and, and very fun. And they make it interesting, for sure. So they call that rattle trap audio in Austin, Texas? It's a home studio in Austin, Texas that they've been making music out of for over 10 years. Brian just celebrated the 10-year anniversary of a little EP that did very big things for an artist named David Ramirez, who has certainly become a bit of a legend <laughs> over the last 10 years, it seems, at least in my in my universe. Someone whose songwriting is just fantastic and you know the music matches. And it's so incredible to think that projects like that came from that 
place and they're still doing it 10 years later. And it's been pretty awesome to sort of join that fold in some small capacity and to join, join the ranks of other songwriters that have, you know, created music in that space. So my esteemed and legendary recording engineer, DJ Wyatt Schmidt, he and I were looking at the picture of the studio and we didn't realize it was a home studio. And DJ Wyatt Schmidt says, oh my God, look at that equipment. He's got an incredible set up there. Yeah. And so you would not know that this is not a professional studio. He's the real deal with the real equipment and the real goods there. A hundred percent. And it's all in one room. There's a vocal booth in the corner, but everything else is, you know, I'll just pulled up and set up and jammed in tight, but it works in the most beautiful, perfect way. So you start this off with a nice acoustic guitar and you go into some sort of, is it the Mellotron or Steel? I believe that's Steel. The keys are pretty prominent in that song. They do a lot to sort of lift and carry things. And I, and that's something that's consistent throughout the record and definitely noticeable from right out of the gate in this song is one of the things I admire about Jacob on guitar so much is that everything is so nuanced. Like, you know, I've watched him sit and twist knobs and pluck one string for 45 minutes to get the sound right. And you think it seems so ridiculous until you hear the final little note stand out in a final recording. And you're like, that's why it's worth the time to chase those little things and not get too caught up in trying to make bigger sounds when you don't need them. That's something I'm grateful for. It's awesome to work with people like that who have an appreciation for their craft at such a detailed level without needing to go over the top or dive in too heavily when it's not necessary. And and the same can be said for Brian as a steel player. He's a phenomenal steel player. And I, I think one of the things that always stands out, uh, people have mentioned to me, even when he's joined me for shows and stuff, is that everything, again, I'll use the word nuance, is like, it's just felt, not necessarily heard, right? That's something consistent, I think, throughout the record, whether it's Jacob's guitars or Brian's steel. Quite frankly, even the way Fred approaches things on drums is like, unless it's entirely meant to be, nothing's in your face. And as a drummer, I think that's that's like a magical quality to be able to sink in so unobtrusively. So this is a love song to Lindsay. How did she react when you played it to her the first time? About how I expected it. Lin- Lindsay is very in control. And she, she she very rarely gives away too much, even if it's a song I've written for her. She's pretty well guarded when it comes to that. So I've never gotten like some crazy emotional response from her, at least outwardly or openly. But this, I think she has said to me several times, is her favorite song of mine. And I think that is the case, probably because of the same reason it's one of my favorite songs, is it really documents a very important part of our lives. And, you know, it's a pretty detailed account of that place where I was living that she got to visit probably more than she wanted to. But, you know, we were in a long distance relationship for a long time. So it started when we were still in school. She was a year below me. So her junior year, she studied abroad. So that began our long distance relationship. 
So that whole semester we were apart, that whole summer we were apart. And then I had graduated and moved to Mississippi for two years. So that was another two years that we were apart. And then when I completed my two years of teaching, I moved to New York in an attempt to get a little bit closer. She was living in Connecticut after she graduated. So to get a bit closer, I moved to New York. But again, that was another six months where, I mean, we were four hours apart, but we were still apart. So all in all, it was probably about three full years of being together, but living apart. And through all that, I don't think I had ever really captured the long distance relationship in a song. I thought this would be a fun way to kind of tackle that, but at the same time, just really document a place where I lived. I've said before that the song is just as much a, a love letter to the Mississippi Delta as it, as it is to Lindsay because it really digs into some of the details of the things that I'll remember from that place forever. Well, you know, if you hadn't shared with us the Lindsay inspiration of the song, you wouldn't necessarily know that it is a love song to a girl as much as it feels like a love song to the birth of the blues and the Mississippi River and this right. sort of musical hotbed of sound, Memphis, of course, being part of that. Did you guys go out in Memphis on Beale Street? And we we did the whole thing. We did, we stayed at the Peabody. So she said, "Enough with the Hollywood Casino. You're taking me to the Peabody on the next trip. If I'm coming down again, you know, we don't need to go to the Blue and White again. You're taking me to to Beale Street and the Peabody. Is that how it went down? Yep, more more or less. Yeah. <laughs> I have been so disappointed by the significant other's reaction to songwriters' songs. I had this romantic notion that they would somehow break down in tears and and profess <laughs> eternal love when they heard a love song like this. And and I've yet to have that happen on the show. It's like everyone's like, nah, she's kind of like she knows the right songs and. That's kind of interesting and comforting to hear and somewhat vindicating, but it also makes total sense, right? You find a partner who's you know, not going to gush over every little thing you do, right? You, you want someone who can appreciate it, but is also a critic and also just appreciates you for what you do beyond your music or anything like that. Over the years, I've rather quite appreciated her being a tough cookie to crack when it comes to writing songs because you, know, you mentioned the hockey thing previously and... I like to think as much as I say to myself, I'm not very competitive anymore, or at least I'm not when I'm playing beer league hockey, there's still, you know, in my blood, some competitive spirit. And I think some of that comes out when I'm writing a love song and I'm trying to, this will be the one that'll get her. And when it doesn't, I go, well, damn, back to the drawing board. I'll have to do it again. <laughs> Well, it's good to know that she thinks of Bo Armstrong as more than a hockey-playing songwriter. Exactly. And at the end of the day, I think that's pretty important. So I'm grateful for that. This is sort of a random piece of songwriting advice I got from a very random place. But probably 20 years ago, when I recorded my first little handful of demos and called it a CD. I don't, it was never even online. It was old. And I don't think it ever made it to any streaming platforms or anything because I didn't put it there. Um, but at any rate, it was the first thing I'd ever recorded. You know, I was sharing it with my family and my aunt, who is a classics professor, who I thought would have no interest whatsoever in my songs, you know, insisted on listening to it. So I sent her a copy of it. And she like critiqued it, which, which like completely like, I was like, oh boy, that was, this is more than I was bargaining for. But I'll remember this forever. One of the critiques that really stood out was 
you need to give these songs a sense of place. And 16, 17 year old me didn't really know what to make of that, but it had a big impact on me because I thought, I think I thought about it for the next 10 years living in a place like the Mississippi Delta. You're obviously in a very important place and it's very hard to capture those things in a unique and special way, which is why I don't think I was ever able to do so when I was living there. But after I had moved away, I got this meet me in Memphis idea. It hit me pretty quickly that that could be my opportunity to write about a place and to give a song a serious sense of place. That's what I was going for with that song. And I think it worked out. You know, all of those details are things that if you've driven down 61, you'll notice. And that was very much my life for two years. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. talk about another song let's talk about here's looking at you kid yes this is a fun song this is a fun song because it was a collaborative effort that started in my childhood bedroom i remember coming home from from school coming home from connecticut and being upstairs in my bedroom with a guitar and two of my best friends that were still living in texas whenever i came home we would go up to my bedroom and we would play around on guitars and try to write bad songs or try to write good songs, but write bad songs. Um, and we, you know, 15, 16 year olds just figuring it out and having fun. This song was written in that same room, only it happened 20 years later. It was just kind of a bizarre, special experience to be in like your childhood bedroom with your childhood friends doing the same things that you used to do as kids. Only now it felt like you were doing it with more purpose and more authority and more meaning. You know, we were just kind of futzing around on guitar, trying to figure out what we were going to write. We had no intention necessarily on writing a song about having kids or anything, but there was a fourth 
human in the room. And that was one of my friends, his newborn son, he brought along with him and he was literally sleeping on my bed as we were messing around. So it seemed a little obvious the more we were playing around on the guitar that a song about it growing up and having kids was probably a smart thing to write about. We didn't get too far on it that night. We got like the basic structure and melody and a, a few verse lines that we knew were going to work. But the very next day, I was stopping in Dallas on my way down to Austin where I was going to do some recording at Rattle Trap with Ryan. We had about a fraction of the song written. And the next day, I drove down to Austin and finished it with Brian. That was an exhausting one to write. It was probably another six or seven hours of just kind of fumbling over those words. How do you know when a song is done? Uh, you sing the last word, I guess. <laughs> um, who knows? Honestly, I, this song in particular, there's a lot of internal rhyme in the verses. And I think that's one of the things... Brian and I both kind of obsess over. We had finished the first verse in the chorus and we were trying to work our way through that second verse. And I can't remember which lyric it was. I can't remember. I just remember being somewhere in the second verse trying to make one of those internal rhymes click. And we finally got it. And then we're like, that's it. We're, we're going to finish this thing. That was the moment of, I, it wasn't when the song was done, but it was the moment that I knew that it was going to be finished and that we were going to be able to record it the next day. So what's the feeling of that's it? Like, how do you know? What do you feel inside? What's, what's going on in your head when you, oh, man. when you say to yourself, that's it? That's a, that's a really interesting question because the that's it moment happens at different times. Like I haven't finished writing a song in a couple months right now, and it's driving me a little bit insane, but there's a lot on our plate in our house right now. Our little one's not in daycare right now. And I'm sort of handling that while my wife works from home. So I, I haven't really had like the clarity of being able to write a song start to finish. Anyway, this morning, my son is two. And while he was running around the room, I just had a, a line pop into my head. And I was like, that's it. That's going to be the song that I write sometime in the next few weeks. And that's going to get me out of the rut. And that song is like half of a lyric, but I just have this feeling in my brain that it's more than that and that it's worth pursuing. And I feel like a lot of the times when you have that little aha moment, um, you're usually right. Every once in a while, you know, you, you chase something that's maybe wasn't worth chasing, but more often than not, the phrase hits you in a certain way for a certain reason. And you, you just try to, to sort it out. It's interesting because you can have that moment, like I said, out of the blue when you're walking the dog or playing with blocks with your kid, or you can have it four hours into a write when you've got two full verses and half of a chorus written, and you're still not quite sure where that song's going until you have that little, that's the piece that's going to make this all make sense. Like, I, I don't know if I can put into words exactly what it feels like other than it, it kind of hits you like a source of inspiration that like what you're doing is worth pursuing. And I mean that on a more minute scale of like that lyric is worth pursuing. Like that line or that idea is something that you should try to figure out and it'll be worth your time if you do. So is this a father talking to a son or a man talking to a boy? The opening lyric is son, let me tell you a story about a boy who was trying to be a man. Yes. So, um, one of the things I love about the song is with the exception of one or two words, 
if you wanted to, you could take this as a, a father to a son talking about a girl. If you changed one or two lines, it could all be about finding the right woman. But this song is very much a, a father talking to a son, specifically talking to a son that you know is not capable of speaking yet because the idea came from the one-month-old baby that was sleeping on my bed when the idea first came to us. So the idea was, son, let me tell you this story about a boy trying to be a man. And from that line, it just became the idea of growing up alongside the kid that you've just had, basically. So the line is Humphrey Bogart to Ingrid Bergman in the movie Casablanca. Obviously, you know, superstar actor talking to actress in legendary movie. How was that in the song? Or So there, that, I mean, I guess in my head, it was probably a not very interesting turn of phrase to use a famous line from a very famous movie, but to have it literally talking about the kid that was sleeping on the bed. And at the moment, my two friends that I was writing with, I'm not going to call them out on it, but I think one of them may have not even gotten the reference to Casablanca. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because he was just like, oh, right. Here's looking at you, kid, that there's a kid and he's sleeping on her. On the we always say that when we toast someone. We always say that when we toast someone. Exactly. Who invented that? <laughs> exactly. Um, but beyond that, there was no, I wasn't trying to, or we weren't trying to make any reference to the movie beyond that, that being a phrase that is commonly said. And actually, now that I think about it, when Brian and I were trying to finish the chorus, we had it in our heads that it was going to be like a toast because that ends with here's looking at you kid, right? It's a big celebration. Whereas, you know, in the movie, that's not the vibe. And I remember we were trying to finish the chorus and we had already said that, you know, we're baking a toast here. And he was like, yeah. And then you just raise your glass. And I, and I remember that moment because I was like, that was, an, that was another one of those moments where it was like, the song's going to work we're finishing it. It's going to work. Um, and it was just as simple as we're already giving a toast. Now we're just literally going to say, now raise a glass. And it seemed so obvious and right under our nose. And he was able to say it so matter of factly after we were sitting there for probably a few hours at that point. And it was just like a weight came off the, the shoulders. <laughs> so the song has the regret and wisdom of experience. And yet, the optimism and hope for the younger person, the son, and it has that both lyrically and musically, and they're both contradictory oxymoronic ideas. Explain to me how you captured that in the music. Yeah, well, I, th I think a big sort of reoccurring theme in a lot of the things that I write, and particularly on this album, is being aware of your past and learning from your past and not just like running from it or hiding from it, but like accepting it as part of who you are and moving forward from there. And that's really what the song is about, right? It's growth and it's accepting everything you've done up to that point as being part of who you are, but looking onward to everything that's yet to come. That's pretty thorough throughout lyrically. And I think the music does a really steady job over the course of the song of building to those pretty big moments. And the song starts with, I think it's like 10 seconds of just drums, right? And we and you just kind of fall into it, right? It's a slow build, um, 
but by the end of it, like the layers really come together in a pretty heavy way. One that for me, frankly, is to be completely honest, pretty emotional. By the time you get to the end of it, the repeat of the last chorus, raise a glass to all the days ahead. Like that still kind of gets to me a little bit because there's, there's so much happening in that little moment before the instrumental takes us out of the song that it's one of a couple points of catharsis, I think on the record on the whole. I want to ask how your two-year-old son reacted when you played the song for him, but one day I hope he listens to this podcast. And- yeah. Another reason that song is so interesting is it didn't start about my child. Uh, it started about my friend's son and my wife was pregnant at the time. Um, she was probably about six, seven months pregnant. So like it was definitely something I was seeing coming for me, but it started off like quite literally the kid in the song is if we were to take this at its most literal, it would have been my friend's Michael's son who was asleep on the bed. Michael was a new father. My other friend, Hunter, who was writing with us, who he actually came up with the, the initial riff. He's a father of two. I was an expecting father and Brian, he had two kids and another one on the way as well. I don't want to interject anyone else's thoughts or what their emotions were going into the song, but I think it's unique in that it's written by four dads who were at different places in their life of being a dad. Now that you've crossed the river from being an expectant father to an actual dad, yeah, you would have to say there's a difference, would you not? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. But like those three, they were writing from a very different perspective than you. Absolutely. And I think that's the here's looking at you kid line that fell out of my mouth when we were looking at Michael's little one on the bed. And in hindsight, that's interesting because I was the only one looking to it aspirationally, right? As something that I had yet to experience. So I was like in full fledged let's celebrate to this newborn. I don't have one yet, but I have one coming. So like, let's look forward to everything that's yet to come. I had this wonderful dear friend, Scott Wendland in life. And he once told me that whole journey for the man on the firstborn child is such a different, the world starts treating you differently. And then your buddies no longer start asking you about how you're doing. They ask, how's Lindsay doing? Right. And then <laughs> That's and then when the baby comes, it's how's the baby and Lindsay doing? And like you become this afterthought in the friendship and you're like, oh, and the whole world treats you that way. It's like you're now responsible for this thing. And you welcome it in such a special way, right? Like you lose your narcissism and you, yeah. <laughs> or you should. <laughs> well, exactly. And, and that's sort of really what a lot of, I guess the first verse there is about is losing that sense of narcissism and the world just revolving around you. And you think you run the show, right? Because very quickly you do not. <laughs> you have no idea about what it's going to be like. You know, you think you do, you've seen, oh, I, I love it when people say I have nieces and nephews, like it is not the same thing, you know, as being the dad and being the husband and, you, you know, it's a different part of life. I think we were going to go into a different song here, I think, but I'd actually use this as a segue to Mama Sway. Like the calm in the eye of the storm 
the moon in the sky in the hours before morning You dance like the light on the heart of the floor back and forth In the stillness you look right at all The hips swinging slow and lost in the moment You move through the room like you're there all alone And darling, it never gets old You hold him close in your arms You roll like an ocean You whisper a song It's gentle and strong Can you sweep me away? Mama, sweet. Just in that, the story you just told about your friend and, and how fatherhood changes the way the world looks at you and everything, that has sort of become or at least in this past year when I've been writing with Brian, something that's like a common theme for us, we've referred to as like domestic dad vulnerability and really settling into the reality of like, that's a very big part of who we are and it's totally unavoidable. EDV syndrome, <laughs> yeah. domestic dad vulnerability. You could write a book on that, you know, that you could take that onto Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> and again, I don't, I don't want to put too many words in, in Brian's mouth. So I'll pretend it's all from me, but like, we've definitely talked about like, that's something that comes up when we're looking for things to write about. One such thing was when we wrote Mama Sway, right? Like we wrote that about a month or two after my son was born. I think Brian had just had his third or was coming very soon. <laughs> it was almost impossible for us to not write about that before we wrote Mama's Way, we actually even said, like, we don't really want to write a junior song, as Brian refers to them. It just seems like the low-hanging fruit that seems a little too cliche. What's a junior song? A junior song is a song, I, I forget where he got the term, but it refers to a song about your newborn child. Everybody does that. That's a cliche. Right, that right. That's more or less. How do we avoid the cliche of writing a song about the kid you just had? And what's going to make your yours special, right? Like there are tons of songwriters in this world and many of those songwriters have had children and many of them have written songs about those children. So how do you make them meaningful to you, but also meaningful and relatable to other people? So our twist for that was to kind of turn the focus from the newborn child to to the child's mother. Um, and in my case, this song came from a very... Um, specific image I had in my head of cracking the door open when she was, you know, singing him to sleep and recording that video and keeping that in my phone and just saying, I don't know what this, this is going to be a song. I don't know what it is yet. And I recorded that video and I wrote mama sway in my phone and I tucked it away. And when I sat down to write with Brian, that was one of the things I pulled up and very quickly he was like, mama sway sounds like a song. And I was like, yeah, but again, I was like too shy to share it because I didn't want to just write another song that was just about someone's newborn child. 
not that that's bad. I, I should rewind. Like, it's okay if you want to write a song about the child that you just had. Like, that's a very special moment and it's important to document it. So I don't want to talk against doing that. But I think when we sat down to write this one, it was more interesting to turn the focus from the child who was like the obvious, like, center point or you know the catalyst for the song but turn the attention to mama it's a lullaby to motherhood yes totally that's one of the things i love about it because how many lullabies to motherhood are there there's lullabies to children and, and and i would also say it's not just a song about mothers it's a song about mothers and holding their babies so there's two characters in this song in the imagery Always. And one of the distinctive things I love about the song is it's from the second person, which you don't always hear in songs. So it is someone observing this thing. Yeah, that's, that's spot on. And I, and I think that comes from the fact that it's a video. Like I recorded the video on my phone, like through the crack of the door. I was like, this is something I might want to remember in 20 years. Right. And so I just recorded like a 10 second clip of it. I, I can't really share the video with anybody because it's just a dark room, right? <laughs> I, I had to, you know, take some liberties with the imagery there. It was a moment that I was watching. And when we were writing the song, it was very much reimagining that exact moment and trying to document it in a more romantic way. What's the moon in the sky in the hours before morning look like? There's a two windows in my son's room and <laughs> this is one of those liberties. The moon was not shining through those windows because of course the shades were pulled down because you don't want that baby to wake up. The thought I had when I look at that video, which is just Lindsay swaying back and forth, holding my, our son Coleman was how do I describe this in like the most beautiful way possible? And very quickly you're like, well, it's nighttime, the moon's shining. And then you see the window and you're like, in a perfect world, the moonlight is shining through that window and, you know, sort of brushing Lindsay's shoulder and kind of catching Coleman's eyes, right? Like, so that's where you take the poetic license there and try to really create an image that is everything you want it to be, even though the version that's commemorated in your phone video forever is really just a black void. So did this song make Lindsay cry when you played it for her? Nope. <laughs> and and if it did i i never saw it or i didn't know about it and that i think adds to some of the magic i i know she appreciates it i know she i, I do remember thinking like this will be the one how can this not be the one if, if i'm doing everything right i'll be saying that for the next 20 years so i'm, I'm okay with that lyrically i think it's one of my favorite songs it was just a pure exercise in trying to write the most magical, prettiest looking imagery. Like how could I, I really wanted to take that video on my phone and describe it in like the most beautiful way possible. And I think we did a, a pretty good job of that. So you do have very elegant and beautiful lyrics. How do you write the music to match that? On this song in particular, because I was writing it with Brian and, you know, we were, at this point, I think we had probably a quarter or half of the album written, either in songs that we had co-written together or songs that I had written. He was aware of all those other songs. And he says, you don't have any songs in 6-8. 
And he's like, the album will benefit from, you know, a change in pace like that. And I actually think we have more than one song on the album that's written in 6-8. Um, I'd let him do the talking on that. With that in mind, he's like, let's use this as sort of like a turning point. He started playing the riff for this. And I'd written out parts of that first verse. And he was just kind of going with the idea of it feeling like a lullaby, feeling like um, a, a bit of a, a downturn in the record and yeah, it just, I don't know, seemed pretty organic at the time. It was obviously the imagery there was not going to go over something fast paced. So it worked. Now, now that I'm thinking about it, this, this is the song that had the most back and forth after we recorded it. There's actually an alternative version of this one that I just felt didn't totally capture what I was hoping for it to capture. I think it, I had super high hopes for the song because like I was saying, I was hoping this would be the one other than maybe Memphis. I, I've never written a song more specifically for Lindsay. And I really wanted this one to like hit. To get her to cry. Yeah. And you like, let's be honest. Like so you got to keep writing because you didn't get her to cry <laughs> yeah. on this one. So you got to give us some more Lindsay songs. Right. And when I got the first mix back, um, for the first pass at this song, it just didn't, it didn't grab me the way that I thought it was going to. And I think part of that, that is in part because I had super high hopes for it. I, I don't think it was a problem with the instrumentation or anything. It just wasn't quite what I felt. So we actually went back and we almost reworked it entirely. We did as much as we could because I was back in Nashville at that point. So we were trying to avoid the trip back to Austin to like, really start from scratch. The original version started with heavy piano, I think. And then we switched it to start with heavy, like a uh, guitar as the lead instrument. And the first version also went a bit heavier on the electric guitars and some of the ambient electric guitar sounds that I thought were awesome, but I think it was so much different than what was imagining that even though it was wonderful, it, it wasn't clicking with me. Um, so we ended up pulling that and we went heavier with the acoustic guitar and brought the piano in much later and added some Mellotron to it in the bit of the, the instrumental around the bridge. That's what fixed it for me. And it just made it feel more, I guess, surreal because that was the challenge for that song was that it was a very vivid memory of mine but the memory wasn't beautiful, right? Because it was just lights off in dark room. And I wanted to capture like what is the most beautiful version of what that image could be. The music needed to help, you know, paint that picture. And I think the piano and the Mellotron is what fixed that for me. First time I've heard someone on the show say they consciously tried to write a song in six, eight time. Yeah. And that's not normal practice for me. My, my brain doesn't think that way. That was totally at the suggestion of Brian, who has a bit more of a command musically than I do. But you tend to think in four, four time, is that? Yeah, I'd say so. Okay. So, but so what does six, eight time mean to you? What does it connote? Where does it take you? For, for me now, it's, it takes me to this song because, because it's the only thing I've ever if, if I'm being honest, probably the first time anyone had ever even 
mentioned a time signature to me when writing a song. I'm not even remotely thinking about that stuff. I'm just kind of going off of whatever I'm feeling and whatever comes off out of my hands in my mouth when I'm humming a melody. That is the advantage of working with someone who has a bit more of a command musically is that he can say, your album will benefit from this. And I'll say, huh? (laughs) And um, then he plays it. I'm like, oh, right. That feels like what this needs to feel like. And then we kind of jump into the saddle from there. talk about wearing out these wings yeah this is another fun one fun is probably the the wrong word because the song itself is not entirely fun it's it's pretty mournful a little sad a little mysterious but writing it was very fun i think this was the last song i wrote for the record um and it was during quarantine actually we were writing over zoom brian and i have written over zoom prior to the pandemic because he's in austin and i'm in nashville now so we were somewhat accustomed with the Zoom co-write and we wrote it late at night because I've had my hands full during the days a lot recently, but we wrote it pretty late at night and we were having a drink and we were kind of catching up and we didn't have any real agenda. We knew that we could probably use another song or two for the record, but we didn't have anything super specific that we wanted to write. But Brian had this title. He threw out Wearing Out These Wings. And I was like, yes, I want to write what that story is. And neither of us knew what that story was. So we got to sort of dig in from complete scratch and just make up an entire world, um, entire cast of characters. And we kind of approached writing it like you would write like a short film or a you know movie script or something where you're just 
totally creating a world from scratch. We landed on, you know, long hauled trucker who's missing somebody and we didn't want to give too much away. We didn't want anybody to know why this person's missing someone or where that person went, but we just wanted to dive into like the specifics of this moment in that person's life. And ultimately, the more we kind of slogged away at it, it got to the point where we're like, this character is really coming out of our subconscious here because it's really someone like the person in this song could very easily be the person talking to his son and here's looking at you kid or he could very easily be the person asking the question where are you lonesome on that song so while i say we didn't you know have much of an agenda when we started writing it the second we started writing this thread this theme sort of crept back in pretty quickly I got that this was a song about a trucker and being on the road. And I had never heard the phrase with a drop and hook load out of Tulsa, uh-huh. but it made a ton of sense to me. Yep. When we were deciding who this person was and what he did, Brian threw out the idea. is like, I don't know. I kind of have this feeling that he's like, a, you know, drives you know long haul truck or something like that. And my head like exploded because like, a few weeks prior, and I told him this story when I was like, that's exactly who we're writing it about. And I'll tell you why. I had gone on some, this is really random, but like a week or two prior, I had done like a deep dive on long haul truck drivers. There's like, I don't know what made me chase this rabbit down the hole, but I spent like two or three hours one night slash early morning digging into this like interesting subculture of truck driver YouTube channels um, (laughs) where you can like, I mean, I guess for some, you know, for a writer, I guess it's pretty good insight into someone's world. Right. Um, So I spent like all this time, like watching these truck drivers, YouTube channels and the way they communicate with each other and sort of day in the life type of stuff. And I was just totally infatuated with it. So when he said that, I was like, I've got some stuff we can dig into for that. And that's another one of those examples of, before we were talking about when you think you have an idea worth pursuing, like, I don't know why I spent three and a half hours that night (laughs) going down that YouTube hole, watching videos about truck drivers. But I was just like, there's something here. There's something so, so, so compelling in all of this. And like, it's interesting enough for me to, you know, stay up and click again and watch more and keep going down. Like this surely will turn into something. I had no idea what it was going to turn into, but when Brian said wearing out these wings and then said truck drivers, like we've got something. Yeah. It was, it was really interesting. Like we, we even like, we started um, trying to find images of what we thought the guy would look like. Um, So we were like, you know, we were on zoom and we had our messages open as well. And like, we were sending each other images of just like random guys uh, that were like does this look like driver yeah. Guys. yeah or even like i think the image that we ultimately landed on as being our guy which i don't think we'll ever share with anybody because i think everyone creates their own image of what this guy looks like i think the image that we were actually working off of wasn't a truck driver at all he was uh, it was a portrait of a farmer that a good friend of mine had taken i was looking at my friend's photography website and he's an brilliant portrait photographer. And I was like, I think this guy has like the look. And I sent that picture over and he's like, yeah, that'll be our guy. Not that any of that matters because it helps set the world for us. But I think 
to anyone who listens to it, you know, they're going to create their own image of what that person looks like. But it was just another example of like really trying to create something out of nothing and like imagining yourself in a world that maybe you're not familiar with, but maybe it's one you've researched, like driving trucks. Where does the association with wearing out these wings and truck drivers come from? Yeah. So two things there is we use it as a way of there, there's a line in there that he looks to the sky. Right. And from there you could be like, maybe it's just a bird flying up in the air alongside the truck driver looks outside his window and, you know, he sees this bird flying and that, you know, distracts him and takes him to this other place. Another way to look at it is wearing out these wings is just the tires on the truck, right? My first thought when Brian threw out the idea of wearing out these wings, that it was, you know, someone with angelic qualities who's like gone to the dark side. And he was like, oh, I hadn't even thought of angels, right? And I was like, for whatever reason, my my brain went wings, angels, and wearing them out, which means like fading. Either a bird or an angel. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like it seemed so obvious to me, right? It was his idea. But to me, like it was kind of making all of those things work in a way that wanted to leave it a little bit mysterious, I guess. Yeah. There's a mysterious, lonely darkness. Yeah. And, and really, I think that's where we wanted to leave it, right? Like there were a couple moments where we were about to give a little bit more away and it just didn't feel right. The song just made more sense if it was just like leaving more unknown. Yeah. You kind of end it with these ooh, ooh, oohs, just this observational ooh. Yeah. That's awesome that you pick up on that. Um, how better to leave it open-ended than to not sing words, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> And like nothing more needs to be said than an emotional guttural word like ooh. Right. Yeah. And and you're just kind of lost in it, right? Like you're still trying to figure it out. You're tr still trying to understand who he is, where he's going, where he's been. And you know something happened, but you don't know what. And that's kind of enough. We used a baritone guitar in that baritone electric and it made it super spooky and I was wondering, was is that a bass? I said to myself, I wrote, is that a bass? It's a different kind of sound than a bass. Yeah. A lot of songwriters, you know, and musicians, you know, are sort of challenged to play fast, but you decisively start this off with these bass guitar whole notes and organs notes. Yeah. We had to set the stage pretty early, right? That it was just going to be the, a bit mysterious, right? And I think the way we were able to do that was with that heavy droney baritone guitar right at the beginning. It just kind of, it's kind of like a gut punch straight from the get go. And then the Mellotron comes in at the very end as this sort of like hopeful aspirational moment of like, maybe everything's okay. Or, you know, we don't know. So it starts with that really heavy gut punch, but by the end of it, there's hope left in it when we were recording it, not necessarily when we were writing it, but it pretty quickly felt like a type of song that you end an album on. I'm a sucker for the last song on albums. I tend to, those always tend to be my favorites first and last time for whatever reason. In well-sequenced albums, I always feel like the last song means a lot. When we finished all of these, at the time, I think we had like eight or so songs left and I was like, Chasing Ballads has to be the last song. It's just 
and we had already recorded it um, and we had left the ending of Chasing Ballads like really wide open and it was supposed to be like, you know, you're sort of riding off into the sunset at the end of the the record. But then we wrote this one or sorry, we tracked this one. I was like, oh, this is kind of a contender for that like last punctual moment too. One of the ways we fixed that was when it came to sequencing is we put it as the end to side A of what would be the vinyl. And that kind of scratched that itch for me is like, it gives you that, especially with the majority of people listening to the record are going to do so digitally and they're not going to know they have to flip over to side B when they, when they, when they finish that song. But for what it's worth, I do think if you were to sit down and even if you were streaming the record and you listen to it start to finish, it does hit you with a pause, right? Like, and you do come out of that song and you know, you feel like, Oh, there, there's space here. Like something, the first act is over. And then we start back up with here's looking at you kid mentioned before it just comes in on just the drums. Right. And it's like kind of a reset. And of course that song is all about, you know, that pretty major reset in one's life and moving forward. Um, so sorry, that's a tangent about sequencing that (laughs) to me is like an important aspect of trying to put together a more in-depth story, but it's almost like a, a legacy concept in the way music is being released on Spotify. It's I get much it. About- it makes sense. Yeah. And I think it's okay. I, I'm actually going to release a single in February that I think is very much just going to be a single. I, I don't think I'll ever want to put it as a part of a greater work, whether it's like a four song EP or whether it's an LP, it just feels like this song exists on its own and it's going to be released that way. So I, I totally get it. I, I, it meant a lot to me to put together a full album and to try to tell a story that way. It was fulfilling, and, I, and I'm glad I went down that road. Well, for my listeners, you can go to our website and listen to the Bo Armstrong songbook, and I will try to remember to put the songs in that order. <laughs> but we put the songs in the order that we discuss them in the episode on there, and then you will find whatever else I could find on Spotify for that Bo has written out there. So if you just want an afternoon of listening to Bo Armstrong songs, you can listen to the Bo Armstrong songbook on our website at backstorysong.com. Well, let's talk about dance with me. Yes. 
So this was a fun one. I guess that's my go-to line. I just must have so much fun every time I write songs, which is a good thing. This one was quote unquote fun to me because I first wrote this song when I was a junior in college and I wrote it in the back of a classroom on a Friday afternoon. All my friends were in the class and we were all just kind of counting down the minutes. It was like a three o'clock class on a Friday. It was everybody's worst nightmare. I wrote the song and it was very much about just like being in college and what we were about to do because <laughs> we were all sitting in class and we were going to go back to the house and we were going to start having some beers. And then we were going to go downtown to the bottom of the hill where our college was. And that was going to be our weekend because it was springtime and that's what you did. And I always loved that song because it felt very much sort of in the way uh, Meet Me in Memphis was like a very specific point in time in my life that had some references to place. I just, it, it just always stuck with me. I never recorded it. When I was finishing up the album, I had room for like one, maybe two more songs. The idea of rewriting it came to mind and I was like, I could totally reapply this to, to my world now, tie it in a bit more with my roots from back home and, you know, give it a slightly different vibe. So it's the only song I've ever rewritten. It's the only song I like have that I was felt strongly enough about that I could tweak it enough to bring it to life in a way that I'd want to record and keep forever. <laughs> you countrified it. Yeah, a little bit. Totally. With the two-step. They weren't doing the two-step in upstate New York. Absolutely not. Right. And 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 the and the well, actually, Central New York has some venues. I wouldn't call them dance halls, but there are definitely some honky tonk-esque bars in central New York where country music is strong and where the dancing happens that way. Yeah, you wouldn't you wouldn't think it. No, yeah, I've been upstate New York, and it it's pretty country. Yeah, you know, yeah, people don't realize it because there's two parts of the state of New York. Very much so. The whole dance with me part was like finding someone to dance with in the small bar in town, and you know, it wasn't a two step, and it wasn't very elegant, but it was like you were just probably drunk and dancing and having a good time, and it was like. It was just so accurate. <laughs> like, it was like, that's just what you did. And like, everybody remembers it. And interesting thing about that is there's one recording of that song as it was originally written. And that's when I played it at my college. And that was in 2009. I remember that night like it was yesterday because it was a really great show. You know, all my friends were there. My hockey team was there to support. But like, I went to a small college, right? There's only... I think 1300 kids at the school, right? You know, there's lots of pockets of students and, you know, different cliques, but like for that show, for whatever reason, you know, there, <laughs> there wasn't a lot to do that night. So like, there were a lot of people from different parts of, you know, the school were all there. The mood was good. Like people were having a good time probably because, you know, I had the hockey team upstairs, like cracking open beers during the show. And you could, I actually think there's a recording where you can hear someone like opening a beer. I tell the story only because after I released the song, someone from my school who I hadn't spoken with in a decade reached out to me on Facebook and said, I can't believe you re recorded the song. And she had mentioned, she was like, 
I totally see where it, like the changes and like I love it. Like it still captures the same spirit of what you had written originally. And for her, kind of brought her back to sitting in that room that night where it was like this <laughs> sort of weird crowd of people all together listening to some music. And that when she said that, like, that was the point. I was like, that's why I thought this song would work because there was, there was just a, a weird feeling, you know, to it that seemed relatable. There's a real romantic yearning to this song that I love. It's maybe your most romantic song on the album. I think that's true. And if I'm being honest, like that would be the first song that I ever, uh, she's going to hate that I say this, but that's the first song I ever wrote about Lindsay. Um, because, well, you know, I wasn't going to ask yeah. you the question. I, I is the hey there, darling Lindsay? Because if you had a different answer, it would have gotten you in trouble. <laughs> and I didn't want to make you lie. Yeah. But I'm glad you came out with the honest answer there. It is the honest answer. Actually, the first song. It 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 is, and and it's uh, it is about her. The original version of that song was like so grossly overwritten, <laughs> and is like embarrassing. It was very much about her. And I think it was really, it was a relief to be able to like keep that spirit and to um, package it in a way that felt better, <laughs> for lack of a. I'm not going to ask you if she cried when you played this for her, but it's her favorite. It's her favorite. It's her favorite. Did she dance there? She did. Because you couldn't dance with her because you're playing, right? So I guess there's two things happening here. Uh, the night of the show, she was at the show, but she wasn't dancing with me, obviously, because I was playing. I wonder if she knew the first time she heard it, if I was writing it about her. I've never asked her. <laughs> so, Bo, if you could pick any song that you've written and any okay. voice in any musical genre to record Ooh. that song, what song of yours... And which voice would you pick to sing it? Would you like to hear? Okay. Um, on the spot, I would say, and this isn't going to be as cool of an answer as I want it to be, but the song Built to Last, the day we finished writing it, I felt like that would be a perfect Tim McGraw song. <laughs> and um, I haven't loved everything he's put out super recently, but like, you know, he's still a huge heart of of country music. And I, I feel like that song touches on a, a lot of sentiments that fits his palette. And I, and I think his voice would be perfect for it. And, and what are the sentiments of that song that make you think that's a Tim McGraw song? Well, one, you know, I always associate Tim with faith Hill and faith, I guess in general. And, you know, it's a love song about standing the test of time and things surviving through thick and thin and stuff like that. So I think that, just kind of fits the artist, I guess. But we mentioned old guitars and old cars and things like that. And I, I think that kind of fits the vocabulary and something he might sing. But that might also be a little presumptuous and maybe he doesn't want to sing stuff like that all the time. So, <laughs> um, so that would be one. Another one, um, and again, this probably isn't as interesting as I'd want it to be. I think it'd be really cool to hear Chris Stapleton sing Where Are You Lonesome? sing it and also play the the guitar solo in the bridge because he's he's such a distinct voice both you know as a singer and as a guitar player and i think that song has moments for both of those to shine um and i think that'd be pretty damn cool to hear 
But I wish I had like a really cool answer for that. I think those answers are cool. Hey, so Tim and Chris, you've been pitched these two songs. We want to hear them. Please lay them down on your next recording. Thank you. Yes, I would love it. So, Bo, you've been chasing ballads for a long time, huh? I Not professionally, but I, I, <laughs> I have been chasing songs for a very long time. And I'm glad I'm at a point in my life where I finally decided that it was something that I needed to pursue um, with a bit more intention. And we're glad you did. We're glad for your new album, Chasing Ballads, and your earlier album, Where We Are, from 2018. I really enjoyed this and taking this deep dive into your new album. Thank you for coming on our show, Backstory Song. Is there anything you'd like to promote, plug, or say to our audience? No, uh, just thank you so much. Thanks for letting me go off on these tangents. All my friends who know me know that I can go from one end to the other very quickly. (laughs) So thanks for letting me um, walk that crooked line. But yeah, other than that, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. And I have another song coming out February 12th. So this episode, I believe, will be out before then. So everyone can put that on their radar. We're starting a new section of the website called New Releases. So maybe we can get you back here to talk about that song when it's ready, where we stay up to date with some of the artists that have been on our Songwriter Spotlight Friday release schedule. And we look forward to maybe having you back for the new release section of our website. So please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Backstory Song. We are posting 10 things a day, trying to engage you guys in a conversation about music and how much uh, we love it and we love our songwriters. Please listen to our songbook playlists that are on our website so that our artists can get paid by Spotify. And I'd like to thank our sound engineer, DJ Wyatt Schmidt. You are the best. Thank you, Wyatt. Thank you, Wyatt, in the sound booth. And our social media director, MC Owens. And thank you to our listeners for listening to Backstory Songs. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP Smart Side today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save